0: I'd like you to open your Bibles once again tonight to Psalms 101. We're looking at verse two and our title is The Christian Home. This is number two in the series. The Christian Home. It says in verse two, I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. When wilt thou come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart and i think the psalmist is saying lord i'm living at home the way you want me to live within my house the people who know me better than anybody else know that my heart is clean and clear before you when will you come to me knowing that that might be a condition for whether or not god blesses your home as to how you're living at home for i think it's easy to be imitators of christians In public, I think it's easy to go to church and be, as we used to call it, a Sunday go-to-meeting Christian. But throughout the rest of the week, it's back to the vulgarities and the jokes and the foolishness and the indifference and the sins and all of that. But at least you went to church on Sunday. You felt better about yourself even though you weren't living the life. But the psalmist says, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. And you can be sure, all of us can be sure tonight, that the people who live with us in our homes know if we're sincere about what we say we believe or not. They know how we live, by how we talk at home, what we do. They know for sure if we're practicing what we're preaching or if we're trying to, and so forth. I wonder how many young people reach those teen years of where everything is beginning to change rapidly and they're beginning to expand their self out and more and more here and there running around a little bit and gaining friends in the world i wonder how many of them dismissed themselves from the christian life because what they've seen at home it had little effect upon their parents they didn't see much coming out of their house and so as far as they know maybe there's not much to it i could have said that my parents were faithful to go to church every sunday my dad the catholic church my mother christian church I never saw anything in the home equal to what I heard at church. Now, if that's true, then a whole lot of the misguided ideas and directions that a lot of young folks have today, and they will get older and be parents, and they'll pass it to their children, a whole lot of it probably comes out of the way what they saw at home. Parents miss church nights. They go other places. Well, we can always go. And the kids immediately realize that church is not that big a deal in your life. Because if it was, like the preacher talks, you would be there. But apparently you know how you know to put first things first and put other things before Christ and church and all of that. And so kids pick up on that. You can preach all the moral stuff you want to, and God wants you to do this, and God wants you to do that. But if you're not a living example of that, well, your words don't have a lot of value. You'd be like a lot of folks that say, I've heard this too in my life. Well, they preach a good game, but. You know, they say that about Christians in the community. Well, they talk about how holy they are on Sunday morning down there, but, boy, they won't pay their bills, and they'll cheat you, and they're sneaky and run around and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, the world has located a lot of us by the way we live. Point is, going back to the verse, what we are, what we really are, we are at home. What we really are, the kind of people we really are, are the kind of people we are in our house. If you're a young person and you're moody and you're sassy and you can throw tantrums and pitch fits and slam doors, it's because your parents have raised you that way. That's what they've been willing to let you grow up and be like, and you will pass that on to your children, because if you become a parent, your children would be like you. So at some point in all of this walk with God in the Christian life, we've got to assign ourselves the task of living this life at home first. As a man told me years ago, if you can't live it in Joppa, don't take it to Jerusalem, whatever. And so it's living your life at home. But the psalmist said, I'm going to walk in my house with a perfect heart. My heart's going to be true to God at home. There are things they don't tolerate, I will not tolerate, will I let my children tolerate it. We won't do that, talk about that. We won't go there. And your kids know if you mean that or not. And your brothers or your sisters or maybe even your parents, everybody will know it eventually. So this is what God wants us to see, I believe, in this series, that the home is a proving ground. It's where you prove yourself because what you bring to church is what you have made at home. And if you have a dysfunctional, out-of-order house spiritually, then that's what you bring to church. And a lot of parents who bring that disorder to church hope that somehow the preacher can, by preaching, change their children for them. But they can get really convicted in here tonight on a good special day. You can get really convicted and get really concerned about your life and your sins. And yet by the time you go home and you're affected by that same old, same old back home, it loses its sting. It doesn't bear fruit later on in your life. And therefore, I think one of the biggest deterrents, one of the biggest deterrents to living a holy life is not having that drilled in us at home. Now, I can say that I'm guilty to a degree myself, but that doesn't mean you have to be. What a lot of us have learned through life and wish we had done it differently, we can pass on what is right to you, whether we did it or not. Because God honors his word even above his name. Now, the last time, as I said, the spiritual state of the church depends on the state of the home. Would you go back to Ephesians 5? Verse 23 through 29, where the comparison is made between Christ, the church, and the husband, and the wife. In verse 23, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wife, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water, By the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so also. Do you see that? You young men think you want to marry someday. Read this first, and then maybe you don't want to. Remember last week I couldn't get you young folks to make a good confession? Remember I said, say this with me, I will not marry, and none of you would. But I wish people would take seriously what he said here. For example, verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. And back to that verse up there in 25, husbands love your wife even as Christ loved the church. You better study how he loved the church. You are a part of the church. You're a member of it as much as anybody else. And think of how tolerant God has been of us as we have either dragged our feet or struggled or been indifferent in a lot of ways to God, yet he still takes care of us, he still leads us, he's still working on us, he's still dealing with us. He's never forsaken us because we disappointed him. Because he knows how, by what he can do, to bring us around to the place where he can approve of our life. I think a lot of marriages turn out to be something really good because godly people employed godly words in their marriage and in godly prayer and god honored all of those efforts and he came down and changed the situation that was about to go under to something that was really good and you raise children in the midst of something that is good your children are going to honor their parents and they're going to be citizens for god's kingdom because they'll know what's important to you they'll make the same thing important to them and so men it begins with he said men ought to love their wives even as christ also loved the church You got Christ and his body would be called what? Church? Let's call it the bride. And what's the purpose, the function of the church and the bride? What are we supposed to do as a church? We're supposed to build a new building. We're supposed to feed the poor. Nothing wrong maybe with all of that. But is it not to make disciples or holy folks? How's that? To make disciples. Isn't that part of what we're doing here tonight? Do we not gather together to hear the word and then insist that you live it? I can't make you live it, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to make anybody do anything, but I'm here to declare and then to watch over and see if we're heeding the declaring. If we're not, redeclare it and then maybe redeclare it again and maybe at least five years from now, redeclare that same redeclaration again. Until finally what's being declared is being done. It's aimless just to preach sermons to see how many sermons you can preach. I heard a preacher one time boasting of his ability, and he said he preached 2,000 sermons and never preached the same one twice. Well, his boast was in the fact that he was so smart that he could preach on many different subjects and never had to repeat himself. I thought, well, you never want a pastor. He was trying to at the time. Because people don't always get it. And you say it again and you say it again, and you keep saying it until they not only get tired of you saying it, but they finally to decide to do it. Then you don't have to keep saying it. Preacher one time, story was that he preached the same sermon, I think, for a month, every Sunday, four weeks, maybe two months, the same exact sermon, just week after week after week. And finally, the folks said, do you have anything else to say? You're preaching the same thing. And he said, when you practice this one, then we'll get another one. Well, I know what he's saying. This is Christ, his bride and the church, and he gave himself for her that he might cleanse her and so forth, and I think out of all of this to produce a holy seed. Now, with the husband, what's his support or body called? Say wife. I don't know the other way to say this. Wife. What do they produce? Let me put the letters G-S. Godly seed. Is that what he wants? So see, this is a comparison. What God is doing in the church parallels with what God is doing in a home. If he's allowed to and the people are responding to God, then what you see going on in a home is similar to what God is doing in the church. And he is much more tolerant of us than we are of him. Because God insists that we do it his way all the time. And in this liberal world, we want to have options, and there aren't none with God. And if you want to walk the way he wants you to walk, there is no other way, amen? amen? Well, in the home, there is a way that God has given us to live in the home. It takes a while to get to it, because two imperfect people are trying to do something that is perfect, and only a perfect God can bring out of imperfection that which is perfect. Only God can do all of that. So. We define this marriage and the home where all of this happens as an agreement between two people or a man and a woman by mutual consent, both in full agreement, are joined together as husband and wife for the purpose of establishing a home and of raising godly seed. This is what we do. How many Christians marry with that in mind? I don't know, but this is what I think the home should be. It is two people who love each other. They're brought together. They are mutually in agreement with doing this. They both confess before God they want to. They give a commitment, public attestation to what's in their heart towards a husband and towards a wife. And then they begin the journey of establishing a home as God wants it established because that's the kind of atmosphere, and this is a reason for marriage, It's out of an atmosphere of two loving people that children can best be brought into the world to serve God because nobody will care about children more than their parents. It should be, even though one of the signs of the last day is without natural affection. Astorgos, A meaning negative, and storgos, which is family love, it's not there anymore. That's why you have in these last days such a flood of abortions, abandonment of children, Disregard for your children because it's the last days. That's one of the things that will be outstanding in the last days, along with vulgarity and meanness and honoriness and indifference and hate, harm all over the world. It's like that, too. The church is going to grow cold, and the Bible say that. But God ain't going to leave the church, at least his elect. He's not going to leave them alone because before the great judgment comes on the world, Judgment will begin at the house of God. That means, that means that either various members in a family or families are going to be brought in line with God's word because the church consists of families. They're going to be brought together, and God's going to clean them up and purge them and so forth. Now, Matthew 19, Jesus said this, For this cause shall a man and a woman leave their mother and their father. He's quoting from Genesis 2, Matthew 19, 5. You'll find something similar to this in Ephesians 5. But in Matthew 19 and verse 5, Jesus is speaking. Now, the subject here is about divorce and remarriage, which Jesus said in verse 9, whoever puts away his wife and marries another and so forth, it commits adultery. But anyway, in verse 5, he said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they two shall become one flesh. Now the word cleave means to stick like glue. It's like an adhesive. Now today the word cleave in this matter, the word cleave means to tape together. It means Scotch tape that a man and a woman are joined together by scotch tape, one strand. But in the Bible, the Bible version is that two people come together to be permanently glued together as long as they're alive. If one dies, they're no longer married, and they won't be married in heaven either. So you don't know that, but I think you do. What does leave and cleave mean as far as you and I are concerned tonight and the establishment and the bringing together of God of a Christian home? Well, this is the way marriage starts. This is the way God spoke of it. He said, they shall leave and cleave. Now, leave means to leave behind. It would be simply like God has given you favor with a young man or with a young lady. And as a man, you are preparing your life with whatever it would take to bring a woman into your life and support her adequately. And so when you're getting this going, now it's time to seek your bride. God will show you who it is. And then you begin that pursuit of the right way to do that, which will be one night study. But you leave home because of that. You don't leave home because you're 18 and tired of being fussed at. Now, you know, this is just me. I told you at the first session that there's some sensitivity in teaching on the home and teaching about marriage and all of this. So some of these things are a little bit offensive to some people, like submission. Or wives, submit to yourself, your own husband, so forth. Some women really take that as a put-down because they don't know the Lord. They're offended by it. Just like this statement. I think a lot of kids that go to college and move out are kind of leaving the oversight of their parents to go somewhere where who knows what's going on. How many of you been to college? Okay, so you know what's going on. And mom and dad hope it's not going on. But things do. There's nobody there to watch over them, to protect them from things and stuff. And a lot of young people who are not mature enough to make the kind of decisions you might have to make when you're out alone or on your own, make a lot of bad decisions. They pick up a guilt spirit that it attaches itself to them, and then it comes into a marriage, and sometimes can be a real problem in a home. Just mistakes that we made that we should never have had to make because we got away from the oversight of our fathers. How many of you know that a father's job is to watch over his children, pray for them, take care of them? It's the father who determines whether or not his daughter can even marry. You're welcome. That's his job. He doesn't have to give her hand in marriage. It's his job to check out who this is and wants to take his baby away from him. See what's going on here. But this is why you leave. You leave because, as Jesus said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined into his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Now, as I've already said, the word cleave means to adhere or to glue. It's like being glued together with each other. In Ephesians 5.31, this quote from Matthew 19.5 is, and he shall be joined to his wife. And joined would be the same as cleave. That's what's behind it is being joined. It's a merger. Marriage is not a partnership of two equal parts. It's a merging together of two people. I'm talking about Christian marriage. I'm not talking about heathen marriage. I'm talking about Christian marriage. It's too enlightened, hopefully, 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 But it's two enlightened Christian young people, a girl and a boy, young lady, young man, woman, man. They believe it's God's will. They've given themselves plenty of time to survey the situation, to give a lot of thought to it. And they believe that this is God's will. So they make this decision to be joined together and this marriage actually becomes a merger. It doesn't exactly fit right at the beginning. Let me tell you something else. God doesn't always join equals together. God doesn't always take two people with the same likes and join them together because I know, I know that's true. Like I said last week, if I'd been my wife's dad, I would have not consented to her marrying me. Our families were totally different. We were just totally different. My parents had a philosophy and a manner of life and living that was way different from her family. Two different cultures. You know, I came in the 1800s and she was modern. I mean, just two different people. But out of that, as only God can, two people were joined together and been able to live together. Our children never heard us argue. They've never seen a fit. They've never heard a door slam. They've seen me throw things out in the garage. I'm just saying that God can make things fit. God can make things fit. And I think if we're godly parents, we wait for the confirmation for God to give us, to give the go-ahead to our children to either begin courtship or, having courted and seen everything is above board, to consent to marriage. But that's the father's job. He's supposed to do that. He's in charge of that. We'll look at that later on. but. This is what God wants. And two people, when they do marry, they begin to merge. Now, this isn't easy to do. Marriage is easiest the first two weeks. It is a piece of cake. Nobody cares if you clean house or cook food. All you know is that I am his and he is mine and the world is going to last forever. We're on a white horse riding to the sunset and goodbye trouble. We're headed that way. Oh, marriage, you know, you're in love and you're getting married, everything is fine. I mean, everything just seems to come off well and no clash of personalities yet. You've been courting and dating and you can yak and yak and say nothing. He just loves to hear you talk. And he can be late and goofy half the time and you don't care, he's so cute. Now, later on when you're getting married, You know, the new wears off. Then things come to the surface. And then you realize, I don't like being late all the time. Uh, Could we hurry up back there? Which is not a good way to communicate. You bought a what? You've already got three. And some men say, I got three right now. I'll be back in about two hours. I'll have four. Because that's just the way it was raised. Grew up with that. Merging and coming together and having two people in a home the way they should be isn't an easy thing to do. There's three areas that you've got to do some adjusting in. One is spiritual. I'm talking about cleaving now. There comes a time in your marriage you will have to make sure you're on the same page spiritually if you want things to be smooth. The girl who marries an unsaved boy is asking for serious trouble because chances are he will drag her down. She may come to the Lord with all kinds of professed beliefs and sincerity, and she yaps and tongues and, oh, boy. And he tolerates that because he wants to marry her. He doesn't care what she talks in. As long as he can marry her. And then when he marries her, then he starts having problems with all this stuff. Well, she didn't know he was like that. Right away, you're making a mistake when you start courting somebody that believes differently than you do. Well, they're a good Baptist family, and you're a good charismatic family. you got some problems coming there. Because she's going to hear you one night, I hope, she, before you get married. You're going to be praying in tongues. And she's going to say, what in the world were you saying? Say, I've been praying in tongues all the time. Oh, that's the devil. Well, how I many of you know that doesn't make a good marriage? My friend, Harold Gibbs, remember I mentioned at the seminar. Y'all pray for him. Well, I called him the other day to see how he was doing. We talked for a little while, and then I said, okay, got to go. See you later. And I thought i hit the off button. Well, I'm holding my cell phone like I was here praying for him because I pray for people when I talk to them on the phone. Most of the time when you get through talking, I pray for people. So I was sitting there going, I'm just praying in tongues, I heard someone say, Tom, Tom. I I said, Harold, is that you? He said, yeah. I said, "Uh, I was praying for you. He said, I heard you. I said, well, I I care. (laughs) It was good. It was good. He might ask me, I couldn't understand what you were saying. Probably I'd say, I can't either. (laughs) Because I'm not talking to myself or you, I'm talking to God. And in the Spirit, you're speaking mysteries, so it doesn't matter if you know what you say when you're praying in the Spirit. But, you know, you want to make sure that when you marry, that in order to cleave together... When you're in tune spiritually with each other, a lot of things just get worked out because of the influence of the Spirit of God. You want to make sure you're on the same page about the holidays. I mean, before you even ever think you're going to get married and put a ring on your finger. If you don't deal with these things early on, they will be catastrophes in your marriage. They can make you very, very upset. You can have a bad marriage. You'd be surprised how many times a devil can get into a marriage with two different belief systems and divide a couple. She just becomes tolerant of him, or he just becomes tolerant of her, or he doesn't want his kids going to that church where they talk that way and roll in the floor, he would say. It doesn't make your relationship better. All that cuteness and all of that Coolness goes way far away whenever you get down to the fact that you're not compatible in this one area. This is a big-time area. And how are we going to raise our children? What do you believe about spanking? And what do you believe about the holidays? Or what do you believe about many things? What about our convictions? We can't agree in prayer as touching certain things if we have our doctrines all crisscrossed because we're not in agreement. We can mentally agree, verbally agree, but that doesn't mean we agree with our hearts. And if our hearts are not on the same page, we can pray all we want to, but it won't work. We can't just make it work because we're trying real hard and we're praying. We love each other. We're praying together. That doesn't make it work. It works because you agree together in your hearts. With the heart, man believes, not with his head and his mind and his emotions, but with his heart. So you want to get that worked out because you come into a home. Some of these things you're going to have to deal with. What do you believe about this? Or what are we going to do about this or that? Or are we going to homeschool our children? Or what are we going to let them do? Or when they get grown up and they want to date. And it becomes a war when kids grow up. It does. When they're little, you can just say something. They can't do nothing about it. But when they stare at you or they want to glare at you, which is an absolute no-no. What are you going to do? She might cave into that He said, wait a minute, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 don't give in to that. Well, he's a father. He should be able to step in and say some things and establish some guidelines for his family. If he's going to be the head of it, he needs to be in charge. He doesn't have to rule like some tyrant, but he certainly can establish himself as the one who has to give an answer for his family. In the eyes of God, a man is a priest to his home. He brings his family to God, and he is a prophet to his home. He brings God to his family. And it's his job to make sure that we're on the same page and that the children respect their mother as well as his decisions. That's his job. And when things need to be dealt with, he's got to get off the couch and deal with it. Because if you don't, then you're allowing the devil to come in and he will every chance he gets and plant a seed in your family and plant a seed in your marriage and affect you adversely that way. What about going to the same church? Wouldn't it be better if you married somebody that either believes exactly the way you do somewhere else or somebody that's in the same church? Oh, but that boy down at other church, he's really cute. Well, he won't be cute whenever you can't get along with him. You got to make an adjustment in the area of the soul. The soul we speak of as the emotions, your intellect, better one word communication. This is how we communicate with each other in the realm of our mind and our thoughts. Our mind feeds our words, and we speak our words, and we communicate. There's a right way to communicate, and there's a wrong way to communicate. Again, if a man is ahead of his house, he makes decisions, but he doesn't always make decisions because he's ahead of his house. Sometimes he asks his wife, you know, what do you think about this? Do you think, you know, about my decision I made or about what we're going to to do? I want to know how you feel about it. And she wouldn't say, oh, I don't care. You're the head of the house. I'm I'm a nobody. No, I didn't marry a nobody. I married somebody. And I want your input. I'll make the decision, but I'd like to know where you are with all of this because I want to make sure that we're in agreement. I think wisdom dictates that. You do that because... A man doesn't just dictate to his family like some tyrant what we're going to do or what we're not going to do. He may know what to do and do it, but sometimes he doesn't know. And God gives a lot of wisdom to his wife. And as they communicate with each other, he begins to see the logic or the wisdom of what she's saying. He said, that's good. That's what we'll do. So he makes that decision. And if it doesn't work, he takes the blame for it because he's the head of the house. He's not a buck-passer. What we do is what I decide to do. I may do it because it was a better idea coming from you, but that's what we will do because that's my decision. There's a lot of wisdom. Before you all you girls and boys marry, make sure that you're marrying somebody that is willing to be considerate, thoughtful towards you. At no time in the Bible does it say that a woman should be the head of her home or run a house. But at the same time, a woman has a voice, She has a mind, and sometimes she knows better about things, what to do, than a man does. And even though he's not listening to her, a wise woman has ways with her womanliness to communicate with a man about a better way of doing things that he wants to do. She doesn't push him. She just simply has a way. God made her that way. And she shares things, and he sees that she's sincere and serious, and so he listens to her. Now, I came out of a home where my philosophy was, it really was, that no woman will ever, ever tell me what to do. No living female of any age or sort will ever tell me what to do, maybe with the exception of my mother. And I, I was kind of afraid of her, but not really. I just respected my mother, I guess. But So when I got married, if my wife had a better idea, you know, How many of you know that doesn't make the best marriage? But if you use wisdom and you just pray and say, God, would you deal with this difficult titanium-headed husband of mine? That God has a way, if she's right, of honoring her and making a man see things without her acting, you know, one with both hands on her hips mad. And instead of her doing that little thing, she just simply says, okay, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. And then she says, no, Lord, in Jesus' name. So she starts praying. So the man says, you know, I've been thinking about what we're gonna do here. And I, what'd you say the other day about this? It's communication. You cannot have a Christian marriage that honors Christ without communication. Communication is not grunts and noises they words. There's more to it than that. And when she wants to spend money that she doesn't have, he needs to stand in and say, we can't afford that. But he can't himself go out and buy something like that because he violates himself and loses her respect for him whenever he does that. Uh, talking about wisdom in a home, wisdom is something that you don't just find. It comes because a lot of people slow down. They keep their mouth shut for a while. Wisdom and knowledge have never been known to enter into a person's mind through his mouth. (laughs) As a Christian, the effect of all these meetings, the influence of that moving of the Spirit in whatever degree he moves, makes you stop and think about things, about what you're doing, because, you know, I have to give an account for all this. I've got two children over here that are growing up and I really want them to grow up being stable and alert and sensitive to God and not afraid of persecution. I want them to know how to do right. I want them to know why it's important. I've got to show them why I do it. Then when I sit down and talk to them about their teen problems that will come and those teen changes, they will listen to me because I've never been offensive to them, but I've been firm and fair. So they will listen. If you're firm and you're fair and you've got a life and a testimony to back up what you're saying, you can say basically whatever you need to say within the realm of what you can prove. But communications, you've got to have that. She wants to go shopping and spend money and he might have to say no. But there's a way to say no without being offensive. He may want to go on a hunting trip. And she says, a hunting trip? For heaven's sakes, you went three years ago. And said, yeah, now I'm 75, it's getting late. A wise woman, she might not say that. She just might say, well, you know, you work hard. You make ends meet around here. You support us. Well, I think you need a good break. And he goes on his trip knowing that he's backed, that his wife is backing him, and he doesn't feel guilty. She might even bake him a box of cookies to go with, just to let her know that I love you. I hope you have a good time. We look forward to you coming home. And while he's out there, honey said, man, I think I want to go home. I want to see my woman. She used wisdom. She didn't agree with what he was doing. Maybe we can't afford that, but he's the boss. He runs a checkbook around here and that's his business. We're stretched a little bit down. I don't know if we really can afford that, but you know what? I'm going to trust him and this home to God and as his body, just like the church prays to God, a wise woman says, I'm going to pray to God too and ask God to give him wisdom in about things of this sort and I'm just going to submit. Well, today, that's not the way it works, but I think biblically that would be really, really good. She might want a membership down at the beauty shop She might want to go down there and and get real pretty and have abs and feminine muscles. And he says, well, what's it cost? You know, she'd been married already two or three years, and she's gained two pounds. So he says, what will it cost? What's membership in a really good place cost? A couple grand, $39 a month. Don't say that. $3,900 a month, see? (laughs) So he says, you know, Ah, uh, I don't think we ought to do that. Let me, in turn, let me go to the to yard sales and see if I can find you a walking machine or some kind of a ab maker or a ball <laughs> to roll on, whatever they do, you know. <laughs> and she, instead of going like that, she says, well, if you think that's best, that'll be good. Maybe we can go together. How many of you know there's no argument? Come on, girls, there's no argument here, is there? No fighting. Nobody's mad. At least they're not showing it. And she's allowing him to be the head of the house, make decisions that he thinks he ought to make. If they're not right, God will fix it and she'll tolerate it. But they don't fight. He doesn't let the devil get, she doesn't let the devil get between them to fight. Or if she's sort of a spoiled little snooty, something that pouts, I want to go to the club. Everybody else is going. He just simply says, well, not you. You Treat me like one of the kids. Well, you're acting like one of them. (laughs) So he just simply says, no, I, I really don't think we can. I don't think you should. So let's just hold off. Maybe things will work out better. Something will come up and you'll be able to do that. But let's not do that right now. Now, she can be pretty snooty about it. She can be difficult about it, make him feel guilty. A lot of women do. A lot of women want their husbands to be unhappy because of things that they feel like their wives would disapprove of. One thing I think every man, every husband wants, he wants the approval of his wife. He may not say that, but he really does want her approval. He wanted it when he was courting her. He wanted it before he knew her and he was attracted to her. No greater compliment can a man receive generally than the one he gets from the one he dedicated, committed his life to in marriage. That's his wife or her husband. Her kind comments, his gracious comments, it just makes you feel better about each other. You don't have to lie. You can think of something good to say. Your hair looks nice today. Well, you, you, know, you look like you're just fresh as a daisy today or something. Well, she likes that. You don't have to make it up. It's because if it's true, say it, just be honest. But anyway, you got to communicate. Thirdly is the body. I think a lot of people marry because of sex and because of affections and intimacy and, and that is a part of marriage. It's a very important part of marriage because a whole lot of marriages are not good because of the overemphasis upon this part here. Because everywhere you look today, everything is advertised by sex, by nakedness. By nakedness, I mean very little on. And a whole lot exposed and the attraction to to the stimulation for the emotion of of affection and for sex and that whole, everything just seemed to be, that's all it's all about. And you come into marriage and that may be for a while, but then after a while, other things begin to be important also. And if he is still 16 years old after he gets married, that's all he thinks about. He's going to have trouble in his marriage with his wife because she's going to, to sit down and talk to him or vice versa. But this is an area that has to be adjusted also. For a marriage to really be good, all three areas, spirit, soul, and body must be areas that husband and wife are adjusting in, where the cleaving is taking place, where you're getting your roots deeper in love and respect for each other like this. And there's power that comes out of this in that home. Not only if two agree together as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them, but like the verse in Ecclesiastes 4. Would you look in Ecclesiastes four, beginning in verse nine? Verse nine through 12, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Ecclesiastes chapter four, in verse nine, two are better than one, and all the young people said, I said young people. I heard some old voices in there, but your Bible says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor, which means two are working together. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath none other to help him. He may be talking here about the village or the community, but I want to apply it to marriage. I remember the first thing that Bonnie and I did on June 30th, 1968, when we got in our house. When we parked that yellow Oldsmobile on the driveway and came in the house, we had that day given our hearts to the Lord as far as we knew how. And I told her when we got in the house on 230 Millview Circle, before we do anything, let's pray. She said, okay. So we knelt by this footstool. And we held hands. And I prayed this. I said, Lord, I want you to make us strong. Something like this. I didn't record this, so I don't know exactly. But I said, Lord, I want you to make us strong. We've given our hearts to you today, and I want you to keep us together. And if I should ever get weak, make her strong to bring me back. If she should ever get weak, make me strong to bring her back. But, Lord, keep us together. Hold us together in Jesus' name. And he has. Now, he's honored that. I can't say our life has been all the good it has been because of that day, but I certainly wouldn't deny that that didn't play a major role in it because that's the first thing we did in our house when we came to the Lord. That was the very first thing we ever did in our home. We got home that day from church, and God has honored that. Now listen to this. Two, he said, are better than one. If one fall, the other will lift up his fellow." Verse 11, if two lie together, then they can have heat, but how can one be warm alone? He's just showing here the benefits of relationship. In verse 12, and if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. A threefold cord is there to show you. We're talking about two in marriage, but he says a threefold cord, when you wrap a cord with two more cords and you twist them and you wind them together, They're hard to break. Now you can take one cord out and you can break it. It's like a bundle of wood. You can take a bunch of yardsticks. You know how easy a yardstick is to break? You can take one yardstick and just pop it and it just breaks easy. But if you put a hundred of them in a bundle and you try to break a hundred of them, you can't do it because there's strength in numbers. The unity of those yardsticks gives strength to those yardsticks. That's why there is Power in unity, at least in the Bible. You ever seen anybody tear a phone book in two? The big, oversized fellows take a phone book. I used to do it all the time. <laughs> now, people can do that because you see it done. But have you ever tried it? No, because they're so tightly packed together that all you can do is wrinkle the outside. But open it up and get one page in there, and how easy is it to tear it? It's easy. The point being, in principle, That when two people are together, like Jesus said, if any two of you on earth agree as touching anything they shall ask, and what two are more adapted to believing alike than a Christian man and a Christian woman? Believing the same thing, working on the same situations, doctrinally, physically, mentally, every way. God says when those two people agree as touching anything they shall ask, it shall be done remember years ago, Bonnie and I decided that we're going to agree together about some things. And you know, God answered all those prayers, he said, why don't you pray for everybody? Well, I can only believe what's in my heart. There's a lot of situations I like to see change, but I can't just make it change because I pray because faith is a matter of the heart, isn't it? With the heart man believes, your mouth can say whatever it wants to. But if your mouth says one thing and your heart cannot confirm it, then it's not faith. But when the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart confirm God's word, then faith comes out of all of that. And when we agreed about some things, well, we're here we are and everybody's well. Because God honors that. A threefold cord. One can put a thousand to flight, two can put ten thousand to flight, and so on and so forth. Now, why is there then so much disorder in the home? Now, you all listen to me now. I wanna address this to Chevyville Christian Assembly, not because I'm after something or somebody, but just as general for us. Why is there so much disorder in homes, Christian homes? Why is it that so many people come out of there, they're not happily married, they don't act like they are, they don't speak well of their mate? I've had stories come back to me 30 years ago, 25 years ago, of wives that would speak ugly about their husbands in a women's group, my husband. What kind of a marriage is that, that your wife would go out and speak evil of the one she committed herself to in public or a man speak down about his wife to the guys? That's a home that's out of order. There is no blessing on that place. Well, you can go to church the rest of your life. But your house is not order. Your kids are not in order. They don't have to mind. They can sass. They can throw fits. They can stay out late and not come home. They can because they know nothing's gonna be done about it. Something's wrong. Why is that? There's only one word in the English language that can define the reason why things are the way they are. It's a three letter word. It begins with S and it ends with N and you see with the middle letter, I, sin. Let me ask you a question, what else could it be? If I'm not being blessed of God, when I can read this word, it seems like every morning I read something about, and God would not bless his people or God turned his back on his people because of their transgressions and their sins. They worshiped idols, were indifferent to God, stiffened their neck this morning, stiffened their neck, turned their backs, and would not give heed to what God was saying. So God abandoned those people. What do you have in an abandoned home? You have disorder. You have disorder. There's a lot of Ds we'll hopefully get to that. Disorder, disunity, and all of that. You have that because of sin. Somewhere God's voice, though it was heard, was not heeded. It didn't fit in with your idea of what's right. We become indifferent to things that we don't want to have to do. Because everything God seems to say we have to work at because there's so much effort. The devil fights you so much when you try to do it God's way. And it's so easy just to let go, quit trying, and just let things be. That's what disaster comes from, is you quit trying. preached a little bit about it. Suddenly you quit overcoming, you quit believing, you quit claiming, you quit standing on your ground, you quit fighting, drawing your sword, you just sort of, oh, well, and you quit, and the devil begins to... Rain in families and reign in homes. I think one of the greatest things that can ever happen here in these closing years of history in this church is for a godly move to take place in every family here. something really deep and dramatic. the gushing of tears and the repentance and the sorrow and the confession and the earnestness of doing things right. It'd be easy to preach. It'd be wonderful. Sin is what's caused a lot of people to be unwilling. Look at what happened to the child raising back in the 50s and 60s, a guy named Dr. Spock. He believed if you have to spank your children, it's because you're a failure. Now the kids he did not spank had become presidents and university leaders. And Look at this age. Look at what happened when you quit spanking children during the Vietnam era. Look at what happened, the protests. And those protesters became presidents. We had one. And now you got leaders in the Supreme Court and senators and so forth who no longer seem to know the difference between right and wrong. Everything is about me and getting votes. It's no longer what's right or wrong. No convictions. Have no moral barometer. All of that happens because of Sin. Turn to Genesis 2, Genesis 2, just an indifference to God, a rejection of God's ways, it happens all the time. I found a verse, I'm going to spring it on you one of these mornings, in Acts 13, just reading the other day, a verse that I had to stare at, and I've how many times have I read through here, and I've never really looked at that verse. You'll find it. You're counting yourself unworthy of the kingdom of God. You count yourself unworthy of his kingdom by the rejection of his way. People do it all the time. You preach it, you preach it, you preach it, and yet it doesn't get done. Why? Because of sin. It's laying everything aside. We can't have godly homes. We can't have Christian homes if we keep rejecting his word. Verse 16. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. This is how all of this disharmony and disunity came into our homes. Let me read verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now what is in this verse but one law? Romans speaks of where there is no law, there is no transgression. You could not break the speed limit if there was no speed limit. But once a sign is stuck on the side of the road, you now have a basis for guilt and for wrong, don't you? The sign says 65 miles per hour. That is established by somebody in the upper limits of the law. And anything beyond that means that you have broken the law. You're a lawbreaker. You're worthy of the penalty of breaking the law. No mercy, nothing, just guilt. Nothing about the law. In the books, it says if you break the law and you cry for three minutes on your knees, kiss the policeman's shoes, you'll be forgiven. It just says if you break the law, you go one fifteen thousandth of a mile per hour over 65, you are guilty. And we all know that's true, don't we? Now, we don't have to break the law, but why do we break the law? We're tempted to. All of creation, one law, one single law, no more, just one. Everything God made was good, wasn't it? It said you can eat of any tree in the garden, help yourself. But this tree here in verse 17, you shall not eat of the tree in verse 17. Because here's what happens in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what happened? Well, Let's keep going because this is what happens. Now look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. Now was this before the law or after the law? This is after the law, isn't it? Who was the law made to? Who was this commandment given to? Adam, not Eve. Amen? She wasn't even here yet. Now she comes into the picture. If the sequence here, if chronologically, this is in order and I have no reason not to believe that and the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone I will make a help meet for him a helper for him and out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field every fowl of the air and brought these unto Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called every living creature that was the name thereof You suppose the serpent was in all of this? If that's true, you reckon Adam gave the serpent a name? Hmm. Anyway, let's go on. Verse 20. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. Now it appears that God made animals. Here's Adam made in the image of God. And God makes all these animals. And all of these animals are brought before Adam and he gives name to them. But it says there wasn't found in any of these creatures that God made something suitable for Adam. Was he looking for a mate? Was he looking for a companion? It doesn't say he was. It doesn't say he wasn't. It simply says he named all these, but there was nothing found for him. There were two maybe of everything else, but there was only one of him. God said it wasn't good for a man to be alone. So he goes on to say in verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is it. This is what I want. She looks like me. She's like me. She's in the same similarity as I am. She's different, but she's the same. She was taken from me and said, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Well, neither one of them had a father or a mother when that was said, did they? So this is something that was said prophetically by Moses when he wrote this. This is why we leave our families. This is why we leave father and mother so that we can be joined to the woman or the man that God brings into our life. So we have Adam and we have Eve, and they're together. Now, it goes on in chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Apparently God made it, didn't he? Or else, when the devil fell from heaven, he looked like some kind of a serpent, whatever we would call a serpent when he fell to this earth. Jesus said, I beheld Satan's lightning fall from heaven. If he hadn't landed on the earth, he'd still falling somewhere out in space. But he's here. It says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, hath God said. That's the first temptation in the Bible. And it questioned whether or not God really meant what he said. And it seemed like the more intelligent people get in higher echelons, the more common this is. Now, that's not really what God meant. Well, yes, it may say that, but what God really meant was this. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, he didn't say you couldn't touch it. He said you can't eat of it, didn't he? Yeah. So where's she getting all these ideas? I don't know. It doesn't say. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. You're not going to die. I know he's got another rib, but you're not going to die. You won't die. Here's the deal. God doesn't want any competition. You see, that particular tree, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like him. You'll live forever. You can't die, and nothing can ever bother you. And after all, when God made the earth, he said it would be good, didn't he? Then why would everything be good, and then for you, be something that would kill you? See, that's the kind of logic and reason that gets a lot of people off the word into trouble. So, verse 5, For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. Now, notice three things here. You'll find this same thing in 1 John 2, 16. The same thing is written right here. Not the same words, but the same thing. 1 John two sixteen. for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Guess who's the God of this world? Guess who promotes worldism? The devil. It said here that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired, to make one wise. She took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now, we're going to pick this up again next week here, but let me say this before we go. I don't know that Adam was standing there beside her. The Bible says he was with her. It might have been with her later, because probably what I think might have happened was, and remember, First Timothy chapter two and verse fourteen says, "And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. She was deceived. The devil was subtle. Remember that in First Corinthians eleven, beguiled Eve through his subtlety. I believe God made women with the kind of emotions that is more attracted to things that make you feel. They might buy a bad car because it's red." Now, I don't mean that as a put down. I'm just saying that what I see here in the Bible, what Adam had told her, because she learned that from him. God didn't tell her that he told Adam that. Adam told her this, not to eat of this fruit. But as she began to look at the tree, because she wasn't there when God made this point. She looked at the tree and she started thinking, you know, it does look good. You know, it wouldn't be wrong to be somebody in this world. Eat that fruit, you're going to be somebody. And after all, I think it would taste... I mean, what's, so what's wrong with it? I believe she took a bite of it, whatever it was. She ate it. No change. She didn't just fall down. She didn't stop breathing, lose her breath, start gasping for air and die. There was no change. She ate the whole thing, I imagine it done not record everything that might have been said maybe the devil said see you didn't die your husband would like it as much as you did and I imagine she might have gone to him and said Adam this is good stuff and she might have said look I ate one of them and look I'm still alive I didn't die I'm not saying this is what happened I'm just saying it could have been like this it doesn't say I don't know Maybe he just stood there with her while she was eating that tree and and knowing better now, he just simply said, Whatever you say, honey, I have a problem with that. <laughs> I would not have a problem with that. But perhaps he saw that she wasn't dead, that she didn't die. And therefore he ate it. The home began to be dysfunctional, and problems came into the home when sin came in. And it wasn't until this happened that there were trouble in the home. Amen. Bow your heads with me for a minute. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, speak to us as we go through this time of studying and teaching on the home. Cause us to hear what we need to hear. Cause it to be said so we can understand it and receive it. Take away all our preconceived ideas, anything that's not scriptural or not right. I ask you to remove it from us and give us a learning and teachable heart. Open our eyes, Lord, and let us see what you're saying. And then give us a heart, a faithful heart, a teachable spirit that we might accept it on your terms. And whatever that means and whatever that costs, be willing to do it. Now, I ask you to bless all of these here tonight with that. Let that settle in everybody's heart here tonight. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.